the strategy inside everything. I'm Adam Pierno. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Strategy Inside Everything. I am very excited today to talk to our guests about getting things well, not wrong, but getting them imperfect and being okay with that and figuring out how to make the best of that and and still do what you consider to be a great job, even when you know you don't have all the information you want. Um, joining me today is the strategy lead at Co-Collective, Jessica Lehman-Ash. Thank you very much for joining me. Hi, Adam. <laughs> it's great to have you. We're on a little bit of a, we have a video patch with a audio through the phone. So we're, we're experimenting with new school and old school technology. <laughs> that's right. We're being imperfect in our yeah. technology system. <laughs> that's where we're bringing this, we're bringing this topic to life in our solutions as exactly like we planned. Before we get up and running uh, on our topic, would you like to give people a sense of your background? Just tell them a little bit about who you are and what you've done. I am a Brit living in New York. I've been here for around six years, just over six years. And I came to New York straight from Shanghai, where I'd been for a year. And before that, I lived in London for a long time. And that's, that might sound like a fortuitous and very international story. Um, I actually grew up in Cambridge, UK, which isn't a million miles from London. It's just down the road on an, in an American sense. And then went and studied music at King's College London and um, majored in composition. So I was writing kind of modern classical music and I was thinking a lot about opera and the drama in opera because I'd grown up doing a lot of theatre and singing and musical theatre and that kind of stuff, being on stage a lot. And, um, and then I finished my music degree and I thought that I wanted to be in creative arts in some way, shape or form. I was really inspired by arts education and I went and did a master's in text and performance studies at RADA, joint with Kings. It doesn't exist anymore in the same format, but it was a really amazing study course because it revolved around really getting to the nitty gritty of what, what makes theatre, the, the theory behind theatre and drama and, um, and acting and voice and things. And I came to the end of that and was, you know, sort of, okay, where do I take this next? And had dreams of being an opera director and wanted to find a route through and wasn't really sure on what that route would be, but um, instead decided, all right, well, I'll, I'll get a grounding in teaching. And I actually went and did Teach First, which is it's a bit like Teach for America. I'd say it's less politically contentious in the UK. So I was teaching music for two years in a high school, um, a senior school, high school in, in London. And um, it was it was pretty challenging. I always say that it was probably the most challenging job, challenging job I've ever had, never will have, <laughs> because teenagers are usually more difficult than clients. And I did that for two years, and then I went on from that, and I did a number of bits of work as a, a creative partnership coordinator. So I would work with schools, and I'd help them identify ways in which they needed to change, and I would bring in creative practitioners to then devise special projects in order to help meet that need for change. So maybe it was a school in, in um, Harlow that needed a lot of work on literacy in their 11 and 12-year-olds. And how could we work with a filmmaker to actually help those children become better with their literacy and engage the parents in the process as well? And that's where I really track my history of being interested in strategy back to, because in a sense, I was being, a, I was being an artistic strategist. I was helping schools with a strategy how they could leverage creative partners 
and um, actually answer a problem that they were encountering. And um, so I did that for a while, and then I ended up having a bit of a career change where I, I realized that I was on the track of something I wanted to be able to do, which was use the, the two different sides of my brain, you know, the left, left side and the right side. I really enjoyed the analytical elements of what I did, understanding problems and helping to solve them. But I really also enjoyed being really creative within that context and um, saw this opportunity to actually use the skills in a different way in a more commercial environment and ended up applying for the WPP fellowship which I really never thought that I would get a place on because it's pretty competitive and ended up with a place after three rounds of interviews. And that autumn, that fall, I went to Rainy Kelly in London, did a year there as a client services person. I then went to Shanghai and worked at Ogilvy as a digital strategist when it was really, digital was already booming in China, but it was at the the nascent days of WeChat. So it was pretty exciting. And when I look back on it now, I think it's fascinating to look at how far that ecosystem has come. Oh yeah. How many, how many eons ahead they are. And then I came to New York, um, and I was for a year at the Future Company, which is part of Cantor originally, and then went into brand strategy. And that has really been where I have found my home and developed my niche. And I spent a number of years at Brand Union, became Super Union, and then went on to Fitch. And now find myself at Co Collective doing a lot of the work that I really love, which is helping clients to solve really challenging meaty business problems um, and working with a lot of inspiring people to be able to do that. How do you, so you, uh, we're going to go way back to um, your music composition focus because uh, just hearing you, just hearing the narrative, I, I can connect music composition, not specifically opera, but, but um, if I remember you play the piano that kind of composition background of knowing I'm here and I need to get the, the person listening to this to feel this way by the end of this movement or, or piece, how do you relate uh, musical composition to strategy, brand strategy, or not at all, and I'm an idiot? Oh, that's a very interesting question that I've never been asked before. Usually it's more general around you know, music and how that helped you in your career. But it's funny, you know, when you're composing you are both trying to feel the right way to, to the notes that you want to put on the page, that you want to bring to life, that you want to, that, you know, that they're going to create a feeling that you want people to feel when they hear it or, you know, to, build the, to create the scene that you're trying to paint. But you're also using a kind of scientific process as well, right? It's an art and a science. You are not... You're not just throwing things down and seeing what sticks. And when you do that, you won't end up with a very good product. You end up with a good product when you're thinking methodically about the timbre of the different instruments that are going to be there. You know, am I writing for am I writing for a wind quintet or am I writing for piano and violin? How do they sound together? Which octaves and ranges? So you're being very specific about what you're using, and why you're using those. But then you're also using your gut and your intuition and your instincts. To, to feel into how those, how that music should should come to life and what it's going to express. So when I think about that in the context of strategy, I think there's a hugely um, there's there is something that ties those things together. Where you know, on the one hand, you're looking for the right tools in your toolbox, like you were talking, you mentioned toolbox earlier. You're looking for the right inputs that you need to use, whether that's pieces of data or 
insights around the landscape in which your client brand exists or consumer insight about how people are living or using different products right now. You're looking for what that can tell you. And that's the more kind of scientific piece of it. But then you're also sometimes going with gut and feel to how you bring those things together to build coherent strategy that is compelling and inspiring. And when you're then building a narrative, perhaps, you're also feeling into that in a way that's telling a story to evoke a feeling in a room. So I think there are similarities. And how does the how does the role of composition play into the idea idea of imperfection? Because I could see it as because it's there's not a verbal component always to musical composition. There's not there's going to be gaps. A lot of it is I'm in, I feel this way. I'm intending for you to feel that way, and we have to find we have to say okay that's that's close enough or that or that's as as much communication as we can get across to one another using this media. Right. Yeah, that's an interesting way of thinking about imperfection in composition. That's right. I think you know one way I would one way I would talk about it is how. Sometimes you would compose, you could compose something and you, when you're playing it through on the piano, even if it's for a few different instruments or when you're hearing it in your head, you would think, oh yeah, this bit, we should feel a crescendo and it should get really loud right here. And then, you know, then we're going to get really quiet just afterwards. And then when it actually gets brought to life by the musicians, they might, I had, I had pieces composed once or twice in um, formal set, sorry, I had pieces performed a few times. And I remember one particular occasion where I'd, I'd, I'd specifically written it to have this quite intense dynamic difference at this one point, and the violinist and the pianist just completely reversed it. And it sounded great, and it made me think that, you know, what I had intended wasn't actually how the music was going to sound best. So I, in that moment, didn't even know best about how the music should be put out into the world. Oh. Um, so sometimes you need, yeah, you need someone else to take a look at what you're doing to maybe in this case perform it or to read it or to discuss it with you to then identify where you could make changes that make it better. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you tell someone a story that you don't intend to be funny, but they start cracking up. And it's sometimes those discoveries are like, oh yeah, I didn't even think about how ridiculous that whole thing is. That's a great result is, is getting a different emotion than sometimes the one you intended, but sometimes not. <laughs> about another another relationship within strategy and it's made and, and music and that we're talking about here and maybe it's less about imperfection but you could say there's an element of that so I once I, I really love Solowit the artist and the way that he talks about his art you, you, you familiar with Solowit? I'm not he he is a he was a modern artist and his art is all around um providing a sort of mathematical instruction that you would then go and bring to life on a wall. And it's very um, architectural and very, what's the word, geometrically driven. Okay. And it's all around lines and length and intersect. And the way that he would talk about it is that he was like a composer and he was then giving it to a conductor and an orchestra to go and bring to life. So he didn't, he no longer had full control over it. And, you know, that reminds me of, the same experience I had where I composed something and when it got brought to life, it became more than even I'd envisaged it as. And the same relationship between a strategist and creative, where you are trying to work together to bring an idea to life. Often your idea is augmented and made even bigger and more powerful by 
know, the, the creative um, brains of our creative partners. And so I think there's other similarities to that there. And now I, I always expect it. I want it. You know, we develop a strategy and then I want them to come back and surprise me. But I want them to surprise me in a, <laughs> in a very particular way where I'm like, I hope they surprise me like this and not like that. <laughs> yeah. Or I don't know how I wanted to be surprised until I'm surprised in a way that I didn't want to be. Uh, and I'm and I'm like, ah, that's not what I meant. But I didn't say what I meant. So I didn't so I didn't get the idea across as clearly as I needed to. <laughs> oh yeah, words are important. It sounds like they might be, yeah. I'm learning this. So you what you and I were talking earlier about the reason we're talking about imperfection is part of it is understanding. Well, I'm putting words in your mouth, but part of what I am interpreting is understanding and turning limitations into a, not necessarily an advantage, but into a tool. Yeah, I think so. We experience limitation or challenge or struggle within all kinds of components of our lives. And, you know, often within, when we talk in a strategic context, I'd say we're up against a few things like, a timing, a time, a timeline. So when do we need to create this buy or resource? How many people do we have to work on this or toolkit available? Do we have the right data, data analytics tools or ability to look in the right places? Or do we have the right information from our clients? And often we are challenged in one or more of those ways. And we're trying to find the right way to get creative around finding a good solution. And I think Often when faced with a big Herculean task of answering a client brief or a problem or solving, you know, solving a question that's been put in front of us, the temptation is to not, the temptation is to worry about what we don't have rather than to think about what we do have and look under all the different, and look under the car bonnet and to see what we can find under there. So, you know, places or ways that we can do that, looking back, at old or different kinds of projects that we did to see what tools we use there and what we can learn from it. Talking to peers or other people in our networks, whether that's other people who might use the product we're working on or have experience with a brand we're creating a, a brand strategy for, or you know, co-workers who've worked on similar projects. And ask them, you know, what what is it that they've used when they're in a pinch and how can we how can we make use of that and how can we make it helpful to us? And then when it's with a timeline, I always try to think of it as what is the most important question that we have to ask for our clients, answer for our clients right now, and um, what is going to what is going to actually get us to the to, to the best answer that we can get to within that timeline or or within this within this the context of this particular ask. And by honing in on those things, it's, I mean it makes it sound easier than it is maybe, but I think by honing in on those things. And trying to avoid the other noise that says that we haven't done enough or we haven't questioned enough, you can sometimes find yourself being more single-minded. And I think this is all easier said than done. <laughs> we're often we're toiling away and we're questioning over and over again: Have we pushed this far enough? And have we done enough work to actually make this valuable? Whereas, yeah, getting comfortable with the imperfection and practicing other ways in our lives of feeling that we're in the mess and feeling that we are okay with things that aren't completely done or finished or right is a really good way of kind of harnessing that 
harnessing that skill and getting better at it because there's never going to be one right answer or one right way of doing everything. Right. We have to move forward with something that we've gotten as far as we can and the information that got us there so that the next group of people can look at the idea and the information that we have to support it and say, oh, okay, I see where you were going. And I agree. I disagree. I can build on it. I'm not sure I get it yet. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. But you, it sounds like you nourish this idea in your life, this, this idea of the imperfection through like you, you play into this pretty heavily outside of the office. Yeah, it's something that I think it's something that's happened almost haphazardly over the years and um, but that I do try and nourish. And it, it's part a desire for self-improvement. It's come from a desire for self-improvement and to understand myself better and to know how I work and how I think and how I go about my life in, in more depth and richness. And it's also become part of a practice that cultivates an ability to be okay with imperfection and not get so anxious about things not being perfect, whether that's a project process or a deliverable or, you know, something else that I've done in my life. Um, so, yeah, I think, it, I think it started with the first true maybe practice that I took up in my adult years. And um, I wish that I'd known more of this when I was younger and practicing away on the piano and and the flute and all the other things I did. But when I was in China, I started doing a lot of yoga. And, you know, the way that you talk about yoga is as a yoga practice. It's not something which is ever perfect. And the more you practice yoga, the more you learn that to try and be perfect is to fly in the face of what the practice is about, which is about being where, where your mind and your body are in that moment. And so the more I embraced that, the more I found more equanimity in my own self ability to accept myself and how I was minute to minute day to day where I was rather than expecting myself to show up differently or to be different and also you know I think you learn to forgive yourself when when you are less than perfect in the way that you show up in your life because you you're becoming more used to this kind of this relationship with yourself and your body and your mind and it's shifting all the time it's shifting every time you get on your mat and you feel that shift and then you can't do the thing yesterday that you do you did tomorrow or vice versa. And so it teaches you patience with yourself, but it also teaches you that to be in the practice and in the work is much more valuable than to always be striving for a particular goal. Oh, that's, yeah. So that's, this is why I've never done yoga. Um, but, this, but this is why <laughs> I don't, I didn't mean this is why I haven't done yoga. I have never done yoga, but this is that rationale you just presented is why I never do things like golf. Like I don't want to <laughs> be the guy in my forties, that's learning to do that with people that already are pretty good at it and kind of always being the one that's, that's off, but it takes a certain kind of comfort to say, I'm going to be off and tomorrow, maybe I'll do better or maybe I won't, but what can I, what thing will I take away from this that makes, you know, the experience more enjoyable or that sticks in my brain in a certain way. That sounds like you're getting. Yeah. No, that's absolutely right. But it, I think yoga is actually a really good example because you often talk to people about it. And they say, well, I can't do yoga. I'm not flexible. And it's such a cliche. And I, <laughs> I, I, I try to not really go there because I feel like it's such a cliche to say, no, it's not about being flexible. It's about 
being where you are and then over time maybe flexibility will happen but it's challenging especially as adults to go into something where we don't have full control right. over what's going to happen we don't know how to get to the outcome that we want to get to and to say i'm going to enter into this with a the mindset of playfulness or exploration or um or kindness kindness to myself right which is something that i learned about I don't always achieve it, but it's something I've learned a lot about through um, a mindfulness practice and course that I did. And that's, an, that's another area that I've explored in. Um, but it, it takes a lot of courage to go there. And in adulthood, I think we feel often like we have to have all the answers, you know, in our work, in our work and in our day to day as managers of other people, as people who have bosses. It's quite uh, anxiety provoking to feel like you don't. And it can just take a moment sometimes where you can reflect or recall other moments or other areas of your life where you're able to feel like it's okay. I don't need to have all the answers myself because this is where I am right now and I can ask for help or I can work on this or it's a skill I need to develop. Um, yeah, and that can come from some of these other areas where you start to develop a more playful or explorative mindset. Are you still taking on hobbies and things to, to test this? Yeah, so there's been a number of different um, there's been a number of different hobbies that I've evolved uh, that I've evolved through over the years, and I think you know, one of the things that I've definitely learned about myself is that um, I'm actually quite happy having multiple hobbies that I'll explore and not always getting to mastery in any one of them. Uh, although there are a couple, I guess that I that I like to think of as being my key ones, but yeah, I've skied a lot over the last almost 20, about 20 years. And that's one where I've probably my favorite thing to do in the world because of the feeling of freedom. And I get a lot of joy from a sense of somewhat, some mastery of it. Um, so that's taken a lot of hours of practice and input. Right. And also the feeling of um, building building on different types of different types of learning in order to get there. Because skiing is one where, you know, I love to learn new skills. I love to take lessons still sometimes. I love to explore new terrain. Um, but I'm, I'm probably more of a master of it than some of my other ones. So I don't have a piano in New York. And, um, or I my flute. I have a piano. And um, so I took up the ukulele because I wanted to be able to sing and play. And that was a really interesting um, experience for me because I, I've never played a string instrument any sort or play the guitar. It's a so lot. It's a lot different set of. It's a lot different set of muscle memory. Very different to a piano. You know, even the way that you think about chords or chord structure right. is totally different. The way that you're using your fingers. So, it, like, got this ukulele as a gift from my mom, and um, and it was it was great. You know, I could learn. What I found was interesting. I could very quickly learn to play a few tunes, and going from zero to you know 10 or 10 to 100 was much harder so my little brother actually is quite a talented um, guitarist and plays multiple other instruments and he kept saying to me no you have to practice slowly you have to practice slowly and rhythmically take that take the drumming a lot slower don't rush at it you know all these things that we used to be told when we were children playing instruments you don't want to hear it now away. yeah now you're like shut up yeah, I'm, i don't want to hear it but that's what that's what we expect, though, right? We expect, even if I translate that to a new software tool or a new you know new research platform that we get access to, we expect to be able to sit down and find what we want right away. 
versus, oh, I'm going to play. I'm just going to set up a fake search and just mess around with it for three months and just see what I figure out how to do. And that's usually when you go, oh, I did, look at this. I can do this. I can create this kind of graphic versus if you yeah. log in for the first time and have a deliverable, you have a report that's due, then you're, you're in deep trouble. In deep trouble, and it was you know that I totally relate to that feeling, and I think it's something that over time I've, I've confronted a little bit, which is the expectation of being able to do things easily because perhaps that's what happened when we were younger, when we were kids, we picked things up easily. And the truth is, especially as strategists, often you are confronted with whether it's tool, new tools, methodologies, new questions you're having to ask in research and finding the right way of doing that. You'll look at something and say, I have absolutely no idea how to wade through this right now or approach it. Right. And it takes a lot of, um, you know, that's courage again, right? The more courageous thing to do is to step back and admit that you don't know exactly how to do it right now and then to explore, okay, so what, what do I know? What do I not know? Who do I need to ask? Um, and how can I be really thoughtful about this? And I think that's definitely an evolution that, that, I've, that, I've, that I've experienced and gone through over time as a, in, in multiple different jobs. I went to, went to Fitch from um, Brand Union, which became Super Union. And at Fitch, I was brought on to, to be a brand strategist who could pull through that thinking into retail strategy, retail and innovation and experience. And I'd never worked on a retail, I'd never done a project where we were actually doing the strategy to create and bring to life a store before. And it's a really different, it's a really different type of strategy that you're doing. The way that you're right, you have to be much less esoteric in some ways and much more tangible because the way that 3D designers need to work is they need to, they need to latch on to particular kinds of language and concept that is very specific in some ways, right? You're actually talking through an experience that someone might have in a space. And so you're not being esoteric in the way that you could start to be in a, in a territory. That you, were, that you were putting out there to discuss with someone. Um, and you have, you know, I certainly had to be very humble about learning how to do that and asking a lot of questions from the designers of what, what do you actually need and what does, what will actually make this work for you when we're using language in different ways and how, how can we actually work together to make this what it needs to be? Yeah, sometimes the, the question, what would be valuable here? It's, it's almost never what would be valuable the time before. Um, sometimes that's a very useful question. What's the, what's the most valuable piece of information I could track down in this situation that I'm in right at this moment? So a new, a new challenge like that. It's nice to have people you can ask what would make their job easier, but I, I suspect they half knew and they half didn't know. It's like they, they thought they had an idea what would be useful, but they didn't know 100% all the way. So they helped get you there, but not prescriptively. Right, yeah. And I mean, that, and that's the beauty of a good collaboration, right? That, it, that you're getting each other there in different ways by trying to fill the gap um, where the other one is, where the other one's moving to, and then you're coming to meet them, right? Um, that's definitely how I've experienced some of the best partnerships that I've had in work situations. It's the same with research when we when we partner with uh, those people that are experts in quant. They have a totally different mindset and they know how to get to the thing you want, but they've oftentimes struggle with 
the concept that leads to the question to the answer. You have to really walk them through like, I need quant to prove this, but this is what, this is the general theory I'm trying to solve for. And that, that first step is the hard one for them. And then once they have that, it's all dominoes. Right, yeah, that they, once they know what you're trying to actually find, they're able to slot all the different pieces together. Yeah, then it, puzzle. right, then it just becomes like they're programming that, that geometric art that you uh, talked about earlier. I, what new hobbies do you have on the horizon? So the hobby I've been doing most recently, which I think was the one I started to tell you about um, when we first started chatting with ceramics. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah. The ceramics is, is a great hobby for anyone who wants to explore this idea of imperfectionism and embracing it in your life. And it's, it's actually came up in conversation with um, another brand strategist that I know who is a very, I think, pretty talented ceramicist and very committed. And um, I've done quite a bit of ceramics as a teen, but mainly hand building. And I, I like to find, I found out recently from my teacher in New York, she was like, yeah, all this wedging stuff. You don't really need to do that. I don't know why she was making you wedge for an hour every week. And I was like, oh, we were wayward, you know, 14, 15 year old girls at an old girls school. So she's probably just trying to kill time. When I was a teen, I did a ton of, um, I did a ton of hand building and then really enjoyed it. And for a long time had this kind of yearning to go back to it and then found out about the class and started in the fall. And I've been learning how to throw on the wheel and that is truly confronting because you see all these beautiful ceramics and it's a very Instagram thing these days, these people having beautiful ceramics in their home and lovely plates and gardens and stuff. Right. And so there's sort of that expectation versus reality. And the first time you get on the wheel, the likelihood is that what you'll do is, you know, not be able to center your clay and you'll squish it to pieces and it will just be, <laughs> you know, a mess. <laughs> um, and I found a lot of pleasure through exploring this feeling of just playing, you know, knowing that I wasn't going to be perfect. They say that you have to throw about 50 to 100 objects before you would actually get an evenness through all the sides of what you're making. So if it's a vase, you know, where you would actually have even contours. Right. And, um, and actually, they also say that once you've, once you've thrown that many, what you really need to do is just start cutting everything in half to see how even it is. So it's Imperfection is baked into the process of learning to be a good potter. And um, I found myself, you know, as a strategist, we are a lot of the time, you know, we're spending a lot of time thinking and with ideas and concepts and analysis, and we're trying to make sense of maybe multiple different conflicting conflicting elements of a, of a tricky problem. And so going to, to do ceramics on a Wednesday night for three hours has become somewhat of a refuge where I could go and be absolutely exhausted, but find myself um, ignited by using this different side of my brain, where it's all about feel and touch. And again, you can't rush it. You have to be very sort of, you have to really feel into the clay and not rush the process and not push too hard because then you're going to, you know, push the side in and also be, be, be then patient with all the different elements of the process. So from throwing it and getting comfortable with that and, and you know, getting the right shape that you desire and then firing it and then glazing it and glazing it's a whole other level of right. challenge it can go totally sideways oh so sideways because you can't see when you're glazing you can't actually see what you're painting on right so just kind of throwing it out there and again learning 
learning from each different one, each, each try that you have. You're you're referencing time, and your your uh, three hours of time and the, the amount of uh, at bats it takes to get to improve. And I wonder in agency world, because we think about time a lot differently, we think of time as a constraint versus a luxury almost always. Uh, does it? How do you, has that changed how you approach time management at work? And I say at work, but I know work spans all kinds of boundaries. Yeah, as I've grown and learned about myself over the years, um, I definitely started to see that I would find time management challenging if I didn't give myself time constraints around what I needed to, to try and achieve. Mm. And you know, everyone's different on this. Some people want to do the full get things done, be super rigorous and meticulous of what's coming into my inbox and what's my next action. And I tried that and I found that it was quite constraining and didn't really work with the way that my brain likes to work. But on the other hand, if I start my day with an idea of, so today will be a good day if I've done these five things and started these two tasks, that enters me into this kind of it puts me in a situation of being in kind communion with what's on my plate and making it um, feel like a great achievement if I get there rather than, oh my gosh, I'm really burdened by time. And I think the other thing about time in agency world is that we do often, we often think about a deliverable rather than the problem that we're trying to solve. And we think, oh my gosh, well, if I have a presentation next week, I have to start making a deck and I have to start making these slides. Yes. I have to start putting these titles on a slide rather than actually taking the time to sit back and say, let me noodle around with these different thoughts and ideas and actually work on answering the question and the problem that we need to solve. Um, and that's actually something that my boss at Co, Neil, is really big on. And I've really enjoyed that he that he is a champion of that because I think it's already making me, to, me think even, even more differently about what what time means in an agency setting and in, in our jobs where we're trying to, we're always trying to do the most with what we've got, often under the pressure of having multiple meetings in a day and trying to find the pockets of time right. that we can actually do work. Yeah, that's a quiet time to focus. Yeah. All right, I'm going to ask one more question and then I'm going to let you get back to your, to your day, which is hopefully coming to an end. Um, when you practice scales... Are you the kind of person that plays scales at an even pace repeatedly, or do you hasten as you go and get faster and faster until you break the scale? Well, I'm going to be honest. I haven't played a scale in a long time. <laughs> I probably should have. When I was younger, I was probably a bit of the latter that I wouldn't like to keep a pace. And I probably fought with my mom about practicing. Scales <laughs> and kind of um, yeah. But I did learn, I think, as I got older, I went to university and I had a pretty strict Russian piano teacher and she did drill me on scales and exercises and things and made me be very meticulous about it. And it was there really was a, helpful. There was a metronome involved if she was Russian, I'm sure. Yeah, there was a metronome involved. And there, yeah. was, there was other techniques as well. Like when you practice a piece, you had to, you know, the thing is like, imagine you're going through a deck, right? And you're reviewing the deck and you always go from the front. And it's a long deck, and so you're always reviewing the front of the deck, and you're never getting to the back of the deck, or everyone's tired by the time you get to the back. It's the same with music. So if you're learning something, if you always start from the beginning, you're not giving attention to the back. So I'd have to practice it the last bar, then the last two bars, then the last three, then the last four. 
all the way to the front. Yeah, but then yeah. you've mastered everything at the back. That's awesome. Yeah, so you've done something backwards and you reap the rewards. That's fantastic. Well, Jessica, this was this was a great time. Um, well spent. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to speak to you. Wait, don't stop listening. The show's not over. If you liked what you just heard or you've liked any of the episodes of the Strategy Inside Everything, do me a favor. I really appreciate it. Leave a review wherever you listen to the show, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever. Please leave us a rating and a review. Please, if you can, share this episode or another episode with a friend. Let them know what you liked about it. Uh, That helps us quite a bit. If you have ideas for guests, for topics, follow up on episodes you've heard, you can tweet at us at APierno, that's me, or at strategy underscore inside, that's the show. Either way, I promise I will respond to you and get back to you right away. And listen, running this show is a labor of love. I really do it just because I enjoy the conversations, but it does cost money. So web hosting costs money. Microphones cost money. My kids' haircuts cost money. If you wouldn't mind, look at our Patreon, Patreon, uh, Adam Pierno there and you could help us out quite a bit. For more information about all the guests we've had, anything you want to know about the podcast, uh, my two books, Underthink It in Specific, or ways to engage with me as a strategy consultant or as a speaker at your next event, please go to adampierno.com and you'll find all the information you want. And if you can't, just send me a note. Thanks a lot.